My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? In this two-part episode, I talk with Cedric Johnson, who contests virtually every aspect of our current left socialist consensus on policing in the US, its origins in slavery and Jim Crow, the problem of police unions, even the possibility of a police-free society. We recorded this conversation a few weeks ago at the height of the protests, and now that those have cooled a bit, Johnson's arguments may receive a fairer hearing. Cedric Johnson is Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. His most recent books include the 2001-2011 edited volume, The Neoliberal Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism, and the Remaking of New Orleans, and uh, from 2007, Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African-American Politics. Our conversation is based on Johnson's chapter, Trumpism, Policing and the Problem of a Surplus Population, in the new book, Labor in the Time of Trump. We're joined by one of the editors of this book, Claire Hammonds, who also appeared earlier in episode 7 of this podcast. Hammonds is Professor of Practice and Graduate Program Director at the UMass Amherst Labor Center. Johnson places the origins of the policing we are protesting not in the era of slavery and Jim Crow, but rather in the Cold War. Its main objective is not to reinforce white supremacy, but rather to subdue the poor and unemployed who are indeed disproportionately non-white. He writes, Policing as we know it emerged out of the post-war urban transformation, the making of middle-class suburbia. The massive state investments in housing and real estate development transformed American cities and in the process produced higher standards of living, popular acceptance of capitalism's virtues, and new social conflicts within the laboring classes. The same historical processes would also create an industrial reserve of unemployed, mostly black and brown urban dwellers. The, quote, thin blue line took shape across this post-war landscape as a means of defending the consumer society. I started by asking Johnson to summarize his critique of the prevailing left understanding of policing. Sure. So, you know, the, the prevailing um, explanation of what we're looking at is that it's rooted in racism. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, um, you may hear that it's, it's rooted in um, slavery, right? That the fugitive slave uh, patrols were um, the beginnings of policing in the United States. That's, that's not exactly helpful, right? Because we know that policing developed across um, the North Atlantic in industrial societies in the same ways. And um, I don't really know how helpful it is to talk about those early patrols as, as precursors to uh, 
to our police. But that's one of the arguments that you'll hear, right? Mm. Um, part of the reason why I'm not convinced by that is because blacks don't become a plurality uh, in the in the prison system until really the election of of um, Ronald Reagan. It's during the 1980s that the numbers flip. When when Reagan's elected, whites still constitute a slim majority of people in uh, jails and prisons across the United States. So it's, the story starts much later. I don't think slavery is helpful for us understanding what's happening now. I don't even think um, the earlier period of black migration into cities is helpful because whites were very much, or you know, very much a main presence within the prison system, right? And were very much organized, you know, involved in organized crime and, and other other uh, criminalized forms of work throughout the 20th century. So the 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 problem of blacks occupying this disproportionate place, either as the victims of police violence or as uh, those who are incarcerated is really a late-breaking story. The the reason I decide to focus on surplus population, this is not a new argument. This is actually an argument that descends from uh, Marx, right? You know, so it's an argument that's used in the 19th century. But with respect to understanding policing in prisons, Black power radicals, you know, Black Panther Party are referring to not so much surplus population, but the reserve army, which is a... Um, cognate notion within Marx's, you know, 19th century writings. Um, and then uh, a number of, of sociologists and, you know, theorists use surplus population as well to think about why prisons expand in the ways that they do, right? So Stuart Hall, the British social theorist during the 1970s, his book, Policing the Crisis, uh, uses that, that frame, uh, as well as Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, uh, Golden Gulag, and a number of other uh, other people writing and working and thinking about these issues. For me, it's helpful because part of the problem emerges, I think, as a result of technological change within um, industry in the in the 1950s and 60s. And some Black authors are thinking about these things. They're writing about the problems that automation uh, are, are producing both on the shop floor, but even beyond, right? Mm. People like James Boggs is, is talking about the ways that there are new rivalries emerging on the shop floor. In the 1963 book that he wrote called The American Revolution, and he's a black auto worker at Chrysler, he says that the new divide within these, these, um, these factories, you know, these automotive factories, is not so much between the old ethnic rivalries that used to exist, but really about people with seniority who are now protected from um, technological change and those who are newcomers who are being locked out. Mm. Um, so those who are unionized and relatively secure and those persons who uh, you know, are more likely to be fired or made obsolete by new technology. He also says, and this is maybe the most prophetic part of the book, he looks at the, um, the changes that are happening within Detroit and in his own neighborhood right, where he sees more and more black men standing out on the street corners and he realizes that these people are not going to be absorbed into this big Fortis, you know, mass production hmm. system in the ways that he was coming from Alabama. And I think he anticipates, in a way, what's going to happen over the next few decades. And the response we get, um, ultimately, it's not uh, an expansion of the welfare state, which many people are calling for in the 1960s, as they talk about automation, right? So people like uh, Bayard Rustin, People like Michael Harrington, you know, one of the founders of the Democratic Socialists of America, right? These folks are 
talking about automation and also calling for uh, a more generous social wage. Ultimately, right, that doesn't happen, right? We see the pulling back of the welfare state and then the prison comes in to, to, uh, to serve that, that purpose, right, to manage the poor. And so I think talking in terms of surplus population is helpful for us. Not only does it help us identify which black people are the ones who are most likely to be policed, right? It's not celebrities. It's not uh, necessarily black persons who live in middle-class enclaves or even, you know, people who live in areas that aren't heavily policed. It's people who live in those zones that have been designated as, um, you know, places that have to be controlled, have to be segregated, and, and the people also have to be managed, right, by the state in, through violence. And I think that's, that helps us identify which Blacks are the most vulnerable. It also connects their experiences to those of, of whites and Latinos and Native Americans and other persons scattered across the country who are also subjected to um, police violence and routine surveillance and ultimately, you know, uh, incarceration in many cases. Um, in other states where Again, the demography is different. So I think it's useful, right? It's useful for us to think in terms of surplus population. It's not a good slogan, right? So we're not going to see <laughs> that on a, on a, a poster. But, um, but I think it's, it's, if we want to think about solutions, right, the diagnosis you know, should inform the prescription, right? It should perform the, the remedy, uh, uh, you know, inform it. And I think um, in this case, you know, if we think of it in terms of relative surplus population, the problem isn't racism. The problem is, what do we do with these people in our society who've been locked out of this path to middle class uh, or even, even you know, uh, decent working class, you know, or even indecent working class living, right? But people who are dependent upon either uh, state relief or ultimately on criminalized forms of work in order to survive, right? What are we going to do about that problem more generally? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot to think about because it's so different from, uh, you know, the new Jim Crow uh, kind of um, uh, account that, uh, that, you know, is, is now prominent in, in the mainstream in a way that, you know, it it wasn't say a decade ago, and and right. I've always thought that this was actually significant progress for the general culture to recognize that uh, you know that the problem is um, is so deep that uh, you know uh, you, you know it's that that it has this particular history in the U.S. and so mm-hmm. so it's really refreshing to hear your sort of uh, counter to that, and at the same time, I'm wondering if these are really do these need to be two distinct ways of understanding the question? Mm-hmm. Can they be uh, can they be connected, sort of, you know, theoretically or historically? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, or are we are we sort of are, are we forced to choose between them? Right. No, that's a good point. I think you know, uh, in the rush to criticize, I think sometimes people <laughs> sharpen the the uh, the distinctions between the, the positions. I mean, so I'll say two things. One, um, I'm of the mindset of like a Barbara Fields where, you know, there's no, there's no debating race and class, right, back and forth. They're two different concepts, right? One, you know, the concepts of a different order as, as Barbara Fields put it, you know, uh, one is 
purely ideological, right? And the other one is ideological, but also with a material basis, right? So I think it's interesting to hear how now people have embraced race as something other than the hokum that, you know, you know, that people created in earlier uh, epochs, right? So mm-hmm. I think I think it's funny that now folks have found solace or even, you know, some some sort of, of uh, comfort, right? They, they've organized their politics around race uh, as opposed to rejecting it in the ways that, you know, any racist in my mind should reject it. Not to say that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters, right? It matters in, in real terms. It matters in terms of how uh, social life uh, is experienced, but I think it's different from from class, right? Uh, this is, I think, part of the problem. This is the second thing I'll, I'll kind of lay out. Mm. You know, if you go back to when the Brown decision was was handed down, the Brown versus Board of uh, Education, Topeka, Kansas, in 1954, 60% of the black population lived in poverty, right? And I think mm. for many Americans and a lot of people who are alive now uh, were alive you know, they were alive back then, right? So they can recall that. They recall that reality that most Black people was almost synonymous with being uh, poor and, and excluded and dispossessed. We haven't kept pace with the changes, right? And so even though many people are critical of the great society, they're critical of uh, Black political incorporation that happened during the 70s and, and 80s, those things mattered, right? They actually changed the numbers and they shifted mm-hmm. us from a position where the majority of black people are in poverty to one where only one fourth of the black population is in poverty now. Um, I think less than, actually less than 25%. That's an achievement, right? That's an advance. It still is far beyond the numbers for the general white population, right? And I think that's where you know, where we see both the lag. So many, many Americans still understand poor and poor criminal uh, dispossessed as synonymous with black. And it's not, right, in empirical terms. So I think that's, that's one of the problems. And I think it also infiltrates the way many academics think about these matters, right? Mm. They only want to talk about um, blacks uh, as if, you know, we're all still in the same um, position. And, and then the other part is that we all have since the relative, the same relative experiences and therefore some of the same um, positions, the same perspectives. And that's just not the case. It wasn't even the case during the Jim Crow period, right? If you really study what people had to say about their lives, you know, there was much more in the way of, of diversity and conflict within the black population. But I think, I think that's part of the problem is that there's a lag in terms of how we talk about black people now and, and, you know, and what the actual experiences are. There's also the raw numbers. Let me just add one more thing. I know I said two, two things, but the raw numbers should really push people to think differently about how we, how we discuss black life and in particular black political life, that there's, you know, nearly 46 million African-Americans, right. Which is, you know, um, I think Ture Reed always makes the comparison to Canada, right? That there's, there's more African-Americans than there are people in Canada. Mm. Um, there's well over three times, maybe almost four times as many African-Americans as there are people in Greece. Um, and then there's more of us than there are people in the entire uh, continent of Australia, 
but also surrounding like Melanesia, Micronesia, right? Mm. Why can't we talk about African-Americans with the same level of complexity, right? That we have different experiences, different politics, right? Um, so that's the problem I have with folks on the left who want to like reduce it. I actually do talk about African-Americans, I think with some kind of sophistication um, and, and with, a, with a, a sense of nuance. But when I hear people rush to reassert race as being just as important, just as primary, to me, it does damage to the actual empirical realities that we should, as academics and intellectuals, be studying. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I can, so so first of all, the rush to criticize, uh, you know, we are all in the same uh, trade. And for sure, the way, you know, you're, when you're making, uh, I, I, I know that you guys didn't write labor in the time of Trump primarily for, or only for an academic audience, but, you know, this is the way we are schooled, right? You first say, okay, these folks did this, but, you know, I'm going to do it better or something like that. Right. And um, um, uh, so, so. So I, I appreciate that, you know, that uh, that you can acknowledge that as a source of the, the tension here. Um, I also wonder if, uh, you know, this, so, so in a weird sort of way, this really might be about race in that it, it might be harder for white or, or you know, non-black um, academics to say, you know, I want to talk about differences among these 46 million blacks. I mean, do you think that might be a a factor? Not not that that doesn't mean that people shouldn't do it, but just sociologically, could it, could it, you know, does it have to do with who's in, in academia? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some, some penalties, right? Uh, <laughs> for speaking out, um, and, and speaking out in the wrong ways. Um, but there are people who, there, there are other people who do, who do that work, right? I mean, the late Judith Stein, you know, wrote one of the best books on Marcus Garvey, right? I'm yeah. sure there are plenty of um, black nationalist historians who trashed her book and who don't agree with what she said, but she, she looked at the archive. She, she spent time studying Garvey and she offered uh, a really critical view of him as a black political figure who wasn't the embodiment of, you know, black mass will, but somebody with a really specific set of, of ideas um, that were at odds with other blacks. And, and that's the thing, if you begin to read, like during the period um, that Marcus Garvey was, was, uh, was prominent, other black people, you know, uh, like A. Philip Randolph and W.B. Du Bois and others had serious problems with him as a figure. Right. So I think once we kind of really peer closely at uh, black political life as it exists, we come to, you, you know, there's space to, to make those criticisms because it's not just, you know, you're not intruding on something uh, doing that. Right. You're actually, you know, you're doing the same work you would do with any other group of, of people. But I think you're right. I mean, just the, the kind of uh, environment we're in right now, it doesn't allow for. You know, there's some anti-intellectualism, even within academia, right? That, you know, if you disagree with with uh, certain camps, you know, you'll be totally ostracized. You won't be invited to uh, certain kinds of discussions, right? So I think I think some of the, the uh, you know, the hyperbole, some of the, the sharp edges are a consequence of what's going on in the world. Um, 
I think they're also a consequence of people staking out a particular space within academia, right? So there's cliques and other things that are that are operating. But I think also, and maybe this is, goes back to your original point, um, the way that we've come to to embrace a certain kind of standpoint of epistemology, right? That people are authorized to talk about certain things because of their experiences. And if you don't have those experiences, then you should shut up and go sit somewhere else and not, you know, not speak on it. Um, but I think that's that that's one of the things that's crept into academic discussions and that I think poisons the the well. I mean, I I completely agree. And, you know, at the same time, in a specific situation, I've seen, you know, and Claire and I are in the same department and, you know, in specific situations, we've uh, seen how difficult it is to, uh, you know, sometimes I think for legitimate reasons, for, uh, for people who don't, who aren't, who can't speak d- directly from a particular experience to, to actually reflect on it without being, you know, sort of criticized for doing so, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, it's 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 complicated. I mean, the, it, I think that also is a response to, you know, how freely people were doing that, maybe in a way right. that they shouldn't have been doing before. Right. Um, yeah, um, that, that's what sort of. Oh, sorry, I was just no. going to say, sort of speaking to that point. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the the limitations of having that that sort of standpoint epistemology in which people are not able to speak on things which are not their direct experiences. But it also seems that like that notion came from a place in which there was lots of people speaking on things that they had nothing to know. They didn't know about at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that in and of itself was a problem that it was responding to. So it, you know, it doesn't seem like a clear cut thing or of sort of one or the other. Yeah, I just I guess I just think like when we when we make the move from so it's one thing to say if somebody comes in, you know, the the blowhard um know-it-all guy who's the chair of a department or some person who's been there for a long time who speaks on everything and you know, we've we've all seen bullies and and other bad behavior in academia. I just wonder like what does it mean when we go from the academic conversation and who gets to speak to political formations where um, there's been that problem as well, right? I mean, like a lot of the black power, initial black power uh, ideas come out of the place of whites within civil rights organizations, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they oust the whites from groups like SNCC and, uh, and CORE. But I just wonder, like, how, how well does it serve us now, right? Like if we're in a campaign, whether it's a union, you know, uh, union drive on a campus or in a, in a um, you know, at a, at a Tyson farm, right? You know, some sort of, of slaughterhouse, right? Um, how well does it help us now to, to, to build solidarity? I mean, I just, I'm more skeptical of it, I guess, but. I wonder whether it makes a difference in that context about whether or not the person speaking has more power than the group they're speaking about or less. Um, I mean, cause I, I think within a union context, I mean, I've seen that happen in which, you know, people, um, 
you know, if they're talking about a particular group in which they have more power, then it has a tendency to to perhaps direct the conversation, particularly around strategy and planning in ways that the 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 group that they're the marginalized group that they're working with is um, that might not have been their goals or plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, I mean, to me, this is fairly tough stuff that often in the moment, you know, in a particular situation, I think my general sense is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm generally, I think if I, if I understand you correctly, Cedric, um, I would say I'm broadly coming from the same place. Um, uh, and then at the same time, you know, everything that Claire is saying about, well, you know, uh, who uh, the, this so okay so that's a long-winded say, way of saying that the specifics really matter and then mm-hmm. in a particular like you know faculty meeting or something like that uh sometimes I, I it's it's hard in the moment to like pass those things out and and um and you know i think we're just all f- you know uh fighting that through and and uh, I don't know. To me, it's a sign of progress that those fights are occurring and they don't always get resolved in what I would see as the most constructive way. But, um, you know, anyway. Um, so that actually was a, you know, I was going to um, ask you both uh, uh, in in general how uh, sort of in the context of writing this book, what what you might have to say about how uh, how we should address the race class uh, question? You know, should we emphasize the class commonalities or um, or you know class differences among among blacks? And and implicitly, I think we've already started talking about this. Um, but Cedric, I wonder if you could. Um, Maybe flesh that out a little bit in the context of your uh, account here of, I think, what you call Cold War urbanism as Mm -hmm. the more fruitful way to look at the rise of, you know, uh, policing. Um, uh, So, yeah, first of all, if you could just summarize what you mean by, you know, Cold War urbanism. And then if you if you want, you know, to use that to reflect on sort of this race class uh, sort of question and and feel free to challenge the question itself. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I would start, you know, with the, so I offered at the very beginning of this conversation, the criticism of those who want to draw a straight line from slavery to mass incarceration, right? Um, so what I do instead is I look at the post-war context and the transformation of American cities in ways that were very much um, segregated by race and class, right? So, um, because I think that's where a lot of the anxieties about crime and about property crime emerge in the Mm -hmm. fear of cities that many people have uh, even now. So um, I spend a lot of time, um, you know, in the, the book that that is sort of coming out of you know this article and a few other things, talking about the the uh, the making of of uh, suburbia as one dimension of it, but also the abandonment of of central cities, right? And this was all, I think, part of um, a broader uh, commercial Keynesian project that was launched after World War II. I mean, it really has its roots in the New Deal, 
Um, but but even but even more so after World War II, certain social democratic projects or parts of the New Deal are jettisoned, right? So public works uh, was a short-term strategy for creating employment for many uh, Americans. But after World War II, we shift towards the model we know now, which is if you want to build a highway or a bridge, you don't use uh, publicly or federally financed um, and managed public works, you just simply finance private contractors to do that work, right? Mm. So um, there's that shift after World War II, which has multiple um, impacts. I mean, on the one hand, there's the development of, of suburbia as you know, in real estate development, both within the city, but, but also suburbia as an economic development strategy that becomes dominate, right? This turn towards, um, you know, housing construction, finance of suburban homes, and all, all of the production that goes around that, right? All of the, the, uh, the goods that people would need in these brand new uh, suburban houses, um, washing machines and, and furniture and all sorts of other things. So there's this there's this expansion of the consumer society, um, again beginning in in the New Deal period, but then really exploding after World War II. That sets the ground for uh, policing as we know it. Right. Um, the one example that I like to use is of uh, William H. Parker, who reigned as the chief of police in Los Angeles during the 19. Um, 50s all the way up through the Watts Rebellion in 1965. Mm. And he's he's often credited with um, developing a number of different strategies as well as a perspective on how to approach managing a large city, right, like like Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, of course, is, is growing by leaps and bounds during the, uh, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And he's the one who coins the term the thin blue line, right? And the reason he uses that term basically... Um, and he's a guy with a military background, so that's, he, was, he was part of the uh, troops that stormed the beaches at Normandy. Hmm. And so he brings some of those ideas back to Los Angeles, right? He sees, the, he sees the police as this thin blue line protecting or separating, really, um, middle class society, right, which is virtuous. And then at the same time, protecting them from... Uh, various problems. One is is organized crime. The other is godless communism. That's his phrase. And uh, he's also very much prejudiced against um, blacks who are filling up the South Central uh, section of Los Angeles at that time. And so um, Parker, you know, Parker sort of lays the groundwork, right? He he sets up what's very much a racialized. But also class, you know, it's a class notion of policing, right? He's going to protect middle class virtue from all of those elements that might try to, to disrupt or rob people of the American dream. And his, one of his great opponents, this is an important part of history that gets forgotten. One of his major opponents was um, Tom Bradley, right, who mm. was a beat cop, a black beat cop, who later was so frustrated with uh, Parker and, and uh, had, had many battles with him that he left the force to go to law school and he eventually becomes the first black mayor of Los Angeles who uh, serves a long time. He serves through the 1984 Olympics, 
all the way through, um, you know, from the 70s up through the 84 Olympics, all the way to the 1992, um, uh, you know, South Central Rebellion, yeah. right after Rodney yeah. King's killing. So, but, um, so, you know, Parker had his opponents, but, you know, it's, you can't, one thing I don't do, and I don't think a lot of the people, you know, many of us who make this, this class, offer this class analysis of black life, we don't deny the fact that there's, um, racial disparity, that there's a history of racial segregation in, in the country, or that these things don't matter. But I think what we're trying to bring to the conversation, um, and I'm talking about Ture Reed, Adolph Reed, Willie Leggett, people like Michelle Boyd, all sorts of other, uh, Judith Stein, other folks who've done this, um, is we're trying to bring you know, a, a, a keener analysis of black life into the conversation, right? So that we don't walk away with the sense that, you know, because one person says it about black people and it must be true, right? Because one person gives us what the what the will, you know, the, the broad political will must be, then we just accept it. Um, but I think that's the that's part of what what I think um, how I try to approach this, this these issues in the in the uh, in my own work, right? That there's no denying that black people are um, you know, disproportionately affected by policing and by this carceral um, regime that we have. And, and it's even more true in some places than others, right? So here in Chicago, you know, over 70% of those persons who, are, who are experience harassment stops, where police stop you and then let you go, mm-hmm. um, 70% of those are black. I've been stopped like that here in this city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for no reason. They just ran my tags, you know, and they let me go. So I think um, that happens. That happens here. It happens in other places. Uh, 70% of folks who, who are killed by police in Chicago are African-Americans, right? So mm-hmm. there's no denying that part of it, right? That that there's a, a racial dimension. But I think it goes back to the disproportionality part, right, that I mentioned earlier, that Blacks are overrepresented among the poor overrepresented among those who are ghettoized and, and, and uh, stuck in place in certain cities and therefore already subject to, to policing in ways that mm. even some blacks are not, right? Even blacks who live in suburbs and other places are not. So I don't know if that helps to, to clarify a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, at some level, the, you know the folks who've written like very eloquently about um uh you know the sheer terror that that you feel as say the the parent of a uh, especially a you know young black uh, man um uh you know and and yes of course that it it really matters where you live um uh it, it, there does seem to be this underlying just like uh, sort of I mean, it sounds almost like a primal kind of thing that, you know, no matter who you are, you step out and there's a certain level of um, probability, you know, let's say. Right. Um, that I, see, I would actually, I mean, I hear you. I, I agree. But I think I think that's more rhetorical, right, to be mm. honest. Um, mm. And so I'll say this as a person who has um, two sons. Um, my oldest is 22. uh my youngest son is 19 and I have a 16-year-old daughter. And 
I, I worry about them incessantly, right? Constantly. Um, and they've all had brushes with the police, right? You know, so, uh, and, and, and all sorts of different stories. I'd have to say though, and maybe this is, you know, I'm sure somebody will say, well, that's just your, your, you know, idiosyncrasy, but I worry about all sorts of other things. And maybe it's because my mind does think in terms of probabilities. I worry about things that are much more likely to happen to my kids in terms of harm than, than being uh, violated by a police officer, right? Mm. Um, despite the fact that they've been stopped multiple times and had really bad brushes, right? In one case, we were going to file a lawsuit. Um, so I'm not, I'm not oblivious to it, but, you know, black kids are much more likely to be, uh, you know, injured in car accidents, right? You know, or mm. much more likely to be, you know, I mean, just in general, not, not, maybe that's the wrong phrasing of it, but just as likely to be injured in, in car accidents mm. or other kinds of, of catastrophes that we think about on a day-to-day basis, suffering from mental health crises or, um, you know, being sexually assaulted if you have a, a, a daughter, right? Those things are much more likely than in a, a fatal encounter with police. And so mm. I think in this moment we're in, it takes up so much oxygen that people believe, start to believe that this is going to happen, right? If you look mm. at the numbers, it's really not likely. Just driving out to go to the grocery store, you're much more likely to get killed than you are by, by a police officer. But injustice of it, you know, forces us to focus on it in ways that might truncate, you know, the real experiences and real worries of Black parents. I mean, I would suspect, you know, uh, for the Black parents that I know, especially those who don't have the means, they're worried about their kids having a future, you know, and getting to college, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe, Mm -hmm. Maybe as much as they are about fatal encounters. So I worry about those things. I'm not trying to 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 uh to dismiss it i think i think it is a real worry but it's a worry among many others you know but in this moment where that particular uh kind of concern has a currency then people you know many people are sort of whenever they're given the mic they focus on that but Mm. you know there are all sorts of other concerns that i think are just as important and you know unfortunately just as likely to to cause harm um to uh to black youth and and other other kids as well i just um i don't know it's just something that bothers me one one thing that that reminded me of that was the there's a book by imani perry uh as well as one by tanahasi coates that both use the same style it's like the letter to Mm. the sun and you know it's beautifully written in both cases i'll give credit to both of those authors it is moving you know to see them kind of warning their sons about the world ahead and what 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 the world might have in store for them, and I get that part, right? But I just think that they that's a that's a more of a, a literary device than it is mm. a true uh, reflection of what black parental worries might be. Mm. Um, and, you know, it has like you, if I write a book about how I how I worry about my kids driving on the the Interstate 290, <laughs> right? Nobody's gonna buy that book. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? Nobody's <laughs> going to run out and be like, well, that's a great book. You know, he's speaking the, the truth of, you know, the black experience. But if I talk about my own encounters with police and the encounters of my kids, then that seems to, to matter more. Or even here's another good example. If I talk about um, those persons I know who've been victims of crimes, right? You know, um, that doesn't, that's a dangerous conversation to have, mm-hmm. right? Because if you start to have that conversation about, 
being in an armed robbery and what that was like, or a sexual assault. It's not going to be received in the same ways. Um, and if it's a black person who was the perpetrator, it would actually be probably condemned as like engaging in a right wing type of, of uh, discourse. Right. So I think, I don't know. I just think that that's more of a literary thing than it is a uh, reflection of black worries. So what do you think of this counterpoint to the now widespread consensus in the left about policing in the U.S.? Certainly, there's no denying the glaring significance of race. One recent study reported that black men in the U.S. have a 1 in 1,000 chance of being killed by police over their lifetimes, which is more than twice as high as the risk for white men. Now, I've never met anyone who thinks this gap is all about race or all about something else. Let's call it class uh, that overlaps with race. The debates are about exactly how race and class play out in specific contexts, and we arrive at different positions based on our understandings of history, our lived experiences, and our analysis of what we need to do now. Uh, and of course, the process of debate can sometimes harden these uh, positions rather than clarify them. Even though my own current understanding is different from Johnson's, or maybe precisely because it is different, I found our conversation very useful and clarifying. In the next part of this conversation, Johnson, Hammonds, and I talk about the efficacy of protests and the possibility of a police-free society. As with this first part, our conversation continues to depart from the received wisdom on the left. And I think it's important for us to take such counterinterpretations seriously, not only in view of the popular resistance to our demands to defund or abolish the police, but also to critically test our own understanding.